0: Take your Bibles and join me this morning by turning to 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14 under the heading Five Essentials for Godliness. Our text is short, but it's power-packed. It's concentrated with truth that that is very practical, very instructive to each of us. The Apostle Paul tells the saints at Corinth and ultimately to all of us, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I've discovered that the barbershop is a microcosm of the world. By the way, I refuse to call it a hair salon or a beauty shop. I don't want to lose my man card, but I guess that's what it is. Women sit there with these bizarre things hanging out of their hair. But there are guys that go in there, too. Anyway, I recently overheard a group of professing Christians, some that I kind of knew, bragging about their favorite TV shows. And while they mentioned four or five that I had never heard of, they mentioned some that I had and and I I've not seen them. I seldom watch TV, but I I, I looked them up and I found it interesting how how excited they were about these TV shows and they used the word that they're just addicted to them. One of them was called The Bachelor, and another one's called The Game of Thrones. Well, I checked them out, and I've seen the advertisements of The Bachelor. Maybe you have, too. You have a handsome man that's presented with a lineup of beautiful women, uh, all vying for his affection, kind of like a king coming into his harem. And uh, they take turns flirting and making out and competing for love and overtly sexual situations on camera which is undoubtedly symptomatic of the fornication that occurs off-camera. And then there are scenes of emotional rants and, and heartbreaking breakups, and everything about it is offensive to a holy God. Everything. It portrays an immoral and unrealistic and even brutal form of, of dating that can only lead to a union that mocks, God's design for marriage. And as I was hearing this and as I thought about it, I think, how can a professing believer possibly be addicted to something that wicked? God ordained marriage and marriage is to be an illustration of the relationship that Christ has with his church. Uh, The loving headship of the husband is to illustrate um, Christ's loving headship of his bridal church. And the the joyful submission of a wife is to picture the, the church's joyful submission to the Lord. All of that gets perverted in this type of thing. My mind went to Matthew 5 and verse 28 where Jesus said, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Folks, when is it appropriate to take Jesus seriously? I researched the Game of Thrones, a very ominous show that shows, uh, uh, really exalts Satan as from what I could gather, his kingdom of darkness. I read how it was infamous for its explicit nudity and sex scenes including graphic scenes of rape and sexual violence against women. Average audience of over 23 million people. And you're addicted to this? You're watching people live out the behaviors that will prevent them from ever entering into the kingdom? According to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And I have to think: are, are, are these people, and and I'm sure it's beyond. It, it has to go into many other ostensibly evangelical churches. Are these people indifferent to the command of First Peter one fifteen, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior? What is that a suggestion? 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Timothy 2.9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Folks, my, my, my point is simply th- this, how easy it is for professing Christians to drift out into an ocean of ungodliness and be clueless. You say, well, are these people Christians? Well, I I don't know. Maybe only God can answer that. Probably not. We know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, right? James 4.4. But certainly these people are terribly deceived. And this is my burden for so many people. Maybe some of you. I don't know. I don't know your private life. But certainly as believers, we can fall victim to these kinds of things. It's frightening. I think of Hebrews 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. I have a great burden for all of you, for my grandchildren. We all have to guard our flesh, guard our hearts from these kinds of temptations. And I was also thinking how this is alarmingly reminiscent of God's warning and his judgment upon ancient Israel. They were enslaved by the power of their own sin. They couldn't even see what was going on. And Hosea 5 verse 4, we read their deeds, literally their sins, will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. The point being the demonic power of idolatry and the habits of sin make genuine repentance highly unlikely. Indeed, the roots of habitual sin grow, grow deep. J.C. Ryle, great English preacher of the 19th century said, quote, habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling but a hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full-grown tree. Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclinations." Folks, this was Paul's concern for the saints at Corinth. It's my concern for you. You will recall in 1 Corinthians how, he confronts them and corrects them for a whole host of sins. You will recall that their their pagan culture and the, the, the Greco-Roman world, along with the, the demonic mystery religions, highly impacted them. And of course, people brought all that stuff into the church. And they they choose to they chose to conform to the culture rather than confront the culture. Remember, they were divisive. They were prejudiced. They had a fascination with human wisdom and philo- philosophical reasoning. The, the, Paul talked about just staggering immaturity in that church. They were filled with jealousy and strife. They tolerated incest and other forms of sexual immorality. They were suing each other almost as a sport. They were divorcing each other for reasons that were unbiblical. They had a bizarre misunderstanding of, of biblical marriage and divorce and the roles of men and women in the church. They made a mockery of the Lord's Supper, some of them getting drunk. They were selfish, arrogant show-offs that abused their spiritual gifts. And Their worship services were just a, a chaotic expression of, of self-promotion that had nothing to do with honoring God. And of course, this provides the perfect breeding ground for false teachers to emerge and do the devil's bidding, the doctrines of demons. The church today, folks, has similar problems due to the moral and doctrinal compromise that has led to the promotion of, frankly, false gospels. And these false gospels have various doctrinal errors in them that lead people astray. And it ends up producing a church that has no fear of God and no commitment to personal holiness, no commitment to the authority of the Word of God. And the deadly effects of all this can be seen in this, this amorphous entity that we have today called evangelicalism. The church today has thrown her doors wide open to every imaginable satanic deception from the acceptance of the LGBTQ agenda to cultural Marxism and the social gospel. Everything from ecumenism to egalitarianism. It's just, it's just a staggering lack of spiritual discernment in the church today. A young family that visited here sometime this last year I visited a few times. I remember they came, there was, they had no Bible and they, they didn't show up. And one of their friends said, yeah, they, they, they didn't like our church because, um, they said the, the preaching was way over their head. They weren't looking for a place to really learn that much about the Bible and Bible study. They were looking for a place for friendship and fellowship and a place where their kids could really feel at home. And so, therefore, this person that was defending them said this, they need a beginner church, not a mature church. And so they're at a beginner's church. The problem is a beginner's church is going to keep you in first grade the rest of your life. You never grow up. And, of course, this is all part of Satan's plan to deceive and to distort and discourage. Dear Christian, I plead with you to take God's warning seriously. I think of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3. But realize this in verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Difficult means perilous. Savage times will come. And the times refers to literally an accumulation of deceptive epochs, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of deception, to the point now where you preach the truth and people just think you're some kind of a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal living in a cave. They can't believe that you would say what God says in his word. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And of course, this speaks of the steady decay of man's spiritual disposition as he tries to make sense out of life apart from God. Paul went on to say, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Folks, this is where we are today. This is what happens when men and women will not endure sound doctrine. They want their ears tickled, so they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto myths. Paul did not want this to happen to the saints at Corinth, nor to the saints in the future. So he gives the corrective instructions that we have in 1 Corinthians, and we've been there for, I don't know how long, many months, right? And we're coming to the end of 1 Corinthians and here in the text before us, we have five commands essential to godliness. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, this is part of what it will be right here. In verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. I'm going to give you five points that are basically a paraphrase, a summarization of what these particular commands are saying. The five essential commands to godliness, be watchful for spiritual adversaries, number one. Number two, be firm in Bible doctrine. Number three, be courageously mature in character and conduct. Number four, be strengthened by the power of Christ. And finally, be loving in all things. So let's examine these five commands that God has given us for our good and his glory. Again, the first one, be on the alert. It could be translated, be awake, be on guard, be watchful. Maintain a vigilant and a determined effort to stay awake. The term is used 22 times in the New Testament, typically in reference to Christians needing to stay awake, to be watchful spiritually, as opposed to being indifferent, as opposed to being careless. So, the first command could be summarized, number one, be watchful for spiritual adversaries. Many examples come to my mind when I study the Word. I'll give you one of them. I remember a number of years ago, I had a hot-blooded quarter horse mare that was a great reigning cow horse and she needed more work to get used to roping and different things. So I took her down to some friends at a big training place down in Fort Worth, Texas. And as we got the mare off the, the trailer, a young lady was there, very kind, and she had a blue healer with her. And I noticed that blue healer was watching me. And I've been around ranches enough to know that you watch blue healers. So we went in and took my horse in and this large barn is a huge facility and lots of people out in the indoor arena. And they said, you know, go down this corridor, put your horse there. And one of the cowboys went there with me and said, you know, why don't you put her in here, put your tack up over here. And, uh, and the young lady had left. And, and as he was walking, walking back, he said, by the way, keep your eye on that dog. It bites. All right. Be on the alert, right? So, oh, boy, I did. So I'm watching this dog. I'm trying to do stuff. And it kept moving around behind me. And finally, bam, it nailed me right on the ankle, tore my jeans, went through, almost went through my boot, just got a hold of my Achilles tendon. And, and, then, and then it backed off. And I, you know, hollered and kicked at it, and it backed off. But it backed off about from here to there. And it just stood there rolling its lips at me and growling. All right, so now what do you do? I hollered for about two or three minutes. Nobody could hear me. So I exercised my Second Amendment right, pulled out my handgun, and I shot right in front of the dog, and it bolted out of there, as we say, like a scalded dog. And so instant repentance. Repentance. Instant repentance. I came out, and they came running up, and what happened? What happened? And I told them, and we looked about 60 yards away, and that dog was up on the back of a flatbed pickup looking at me, (laughs) mourning over his sin, I'm sure. One of the cowboys said, I wish you would have killed that dog. Well, you get the idea. Folks, we have to keep an eye out for certain things, and that's just one rather silly illustration, but I want you to understand from that illustration that we need to be alert for something far more dangerous than an ill-tempered, bad-mannered blue healer. May I offer you five spiritual blue healers you must watch in your life under this heading of be alert. Number one, be watchful for temptations that seduce you to sin. Jesus warned His disciples about this in Mark 14, 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Folks, be alert to those things in your life that you know will tempt you to sin, that you know will tempt you to dishonor Christ in your life and forfeit blessing in your life. The friends you choose, the things you watch, the things you read, the places you go the things you put in your body? Are you alert to all of the enticements in Satan's world system? By the way, they will fall under the categories of the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Proverbs 4, verse 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you and let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. So first of all, be watchful for temptations that seduce you to sin. Secondly, be watchful for your adversary, the devil. First Peter 5, 8b, of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What am I supposed to look for? Look for deception. Look for doctrinal error. Look for things that will cause you to be discouraged in your walk with Christ, to cause you to doubt what the Word of God says. Guard yourselves against those things. By the way, the term devil means slanderer. So look out for those organizations and those kind of people that will malign you. As we read in Titus 3.10, reject a factious man, a Herodotus, the, the heretic that's among you. Have nothing to do with those kinds of people. And Satan is ingenious in his subtle ways of bringing about personal and, and, and spiritual defeat, to bring about doubt and discouragement and discord and distractions and despair. Let, let me put it to you very practically be watchful for the subtle smile of the seductress. Young men be watchful of the winking eyes of some young woman that would tempt you to evil. Beware ladies of the sexy compliment of a coworker. Be watchful for the fraudulent offer of of a shyster. Be watchful of the enticement of some some drink or some drug. Be watchful of the lure of the gambling casino or those little things that you can buy down here at the gas station. All of that lottery is nothing more than a tax on the naive and the ignorant. You see, Satan knows how to trick you so that you will become ineffective and useless for the cause of Christ. He knows how to lay his snares in the well-worn paths of your habitual sinfulness. Be watchful. Thirdly, be watchful for those driven by self-interest and self-gratification in the church. Romans 16, verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who caused dissensions and hindrance contrary to the teaching which you learned. Turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Fourthly, be watchful for false teachers. Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard, Paul says, for yourselves and for all the flock, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking primarily to the, to the elders at the church at Ephesus. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Number five, be watchful for spiritual apathy in your own heart. You know what it is when you begin to grow cold and indifferent towards the word of God and the will of God. Like the self-deceived church at Sardis, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1, the Lord says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, Be sober on all things. Be continually on the alert in every circumstance, in every situation, on all occasions. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. By the way, the way, the term sober is used figuratively in the New Testament um, meaning to be free from any form of mental or or, or spiritual drunkenness that might inhibit you and in your ability to be watchful for danger in your life. Well, back to verse 13. Not only are we to be watchful for spiritual adversaries, but secondly, Paul says, be firm in Bible doctrine. That's what it means in verse 13 when he says, stand firm in the faith referring to the doctrinal truths of the gospel revealed in Scripture, which encompasses the whole counsel of God. Jude 3 is it, it's, it's a reference to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Philippians 1.27, Paul told the saints that he expected to hear that they were, quote, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul refers to this as the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which, you, in which also you stand. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. And 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Folks, be firm in Bible doctrine. Regarding this, I have written about the danger that we we see in this postmodern culture. Have you noticed how everything today is open for debate? No matter what God says, well we, we you know we need to talk about this. I say this in my book, Seven Key Principles for Effective Ministry. Christianity today is being forced to embrace experience over truth. In fact, the concepts of absolute or moral truth are now rejected in our postmodern culture with its prevailing attitude of skepticism, subjectivism, and relativism. We live in a world where all viewpoints, no matter how absurd and contradictory, must be considered equally valid. Whether Whether it is politics or religion, emotion has now replaced reason. Folks stand firm in the faith. Don't equivocate on what God has said. Believe what he has said. By the way, this eliminates the yes, but from doctrinal conversations. You know how it goes. Like, for example, this is big in our culture. God says that homosexuality is an abomination in his eyes, and those that practice that will never enter into the kingdom of God. Yes, but. You know, the 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 church's views are evolving, and on and on and on. Or God has made it clear that men and women in marriage and in the church have different functions. For example, women are not to be in leadership, and they're not to preach. Well, yes, but mm, the Apostle Paul was a chauvinist or whatever. I was talking to a man the other day that was in a church, a large Southern Baptist church in this area. The pastor came to Romans 9, and he said, you know, Paul had all of this wrong. This is pure Calvinism, and we're not going to deal with this. Beloved, once you deny the authority of Scripture, you throw open wide the authority of Satan And he will prevail in a church and in a culture. You see, once the salt has lost its saltiness, the spiritual and moral decay in a country, in a community, certainly in a church, will begin to accelerate. And the stench of putrefaction will begin to fill the land. I was thinking about this the other day. We see how many, uh, in in so many apostate churches, how they have embraced, for example, this gender equality deal. Same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage. By the way, do you realize now that in 33 states it is considered unconstitutional to demand that a woman cover up in public? 30 through 33 states now. It's coming to Tennessee. This past February, in a case that I won't mention because of its vulgarity, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the decision of a federal district court decision holding unconstitutional an ordinance adopted by the city of Fort Collins, Colorado, that banned only women from exposing their breasts in public venues like parks and recreation centers. You see, the feminist movement claims that to ban only women from going topless and not men violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. And guess what influenced the court's ruling? Their decision is, quote, in accord with the U.S. Supreme Court's 2015 decision on same-sex marriage, Obergefell versus Hodges. You see, their reasoning, and I've read up on this, since, they're, since they believe there is no difference between male and females, and when it comes to marriage, there should be no difference between males and females in public. That's their reasoning. So if a man can go topless, a woman ought to be able to go topless as well. Folks, this is what happens when the church loses its saltiness. This is what happens when you don't stand firm in the faith. Now, I know this is ultimately where things are headed because the things things are going to get worse and worse, not better and better until the Lord returns. But as Christians, we are called to take a stand for God and his word to be salt and light, not only because he commands us to do so, but because when we do so, we find real liberty and real life, and real joy. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Paul is saying, be watchful for spiritual adversaries. Be firm in Bible doctrine. Number three, be courageously mature in character and conduct. That's what it means when he says, act like men. It could be translated, be courageous, be manly, show mature courage. That's the idea. By the way, this is the opposite of how he characterized them earlier. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he said, said, "I, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now... You are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. In other words, they were acting like spiritually immature, self-centered toddlers. And we've all seen this. We know what this looks like. You can go across over to the Family Life Center, and you can see what it looks like. They're self-centered. They're demanding. They're ruled by self-will. They're They're jealous. They throw tantrums when they don't get their way. Well, that's what was going going on in Corinth. They were in and out of trouble. They were angry, critical, controlling, self-will, divisive, unteachable. He says you were walking like mere men. In 1 Corinthians 14:20 he says, "Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature." You see, spiritual immaturity has become the rule rather than the exception in evangelicalism today, which is not surprising. Believers simply cannot grow up in Christ apart from the nourishment of the Word of God. And if they don't get that, they'll believe all kinds of silly things. Someone showed me just this morning uh, the quote of, of one of the most... Prominent female preachers out there today that has an impact on probably millions of women. She said this, quote, we command all satanic pregnancies to miscarry right now. What type of insanity is that? You see, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Ephesians four one, And you don't do that apart from the word of God. Not the word not the word of man, excuse me. In fact, 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says, we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that a a, physically speaking, a poor diet can lead to poor health. We all know that. How many times have we heard somebody say, you are what you eat? And we, we understand that. Proper nutrition helps your body. To, to function as it should, to be strong, to fight against diseases. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. If all you read is the, the superficial, best-selling dribble that you find in the local Christian bookstore, you'll never grow up. It's cotton candy for the most part. You will never be strong in the Lord. You will continue to lack discernment. You will continue to go listen to someone who said that bizarre thing, we command all satanic pregnancies to miscarry right now. I and mean, it's just just insane. You will manifest the characteristics of spiritual toddlers like the Corinthians. And by the way, that's a horrible thing to witness, to be around people that are that way, that are selfish and demanding and undiscerning, doctrinally illiterate, just the spiritual whiners. By the way, it's even worse being married to one as some people well know. Act like men, Paul says. Be courageously mature in your character and your conduct. And again, the key to this is to long for, as 1 Peter 2 .2 says, the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And we know that God has given the church, men and women, many of you here, with gifts, to uniquely serve in the capacity of, of giving out the pure milk of the word in your various spheres of influence. If you need to spend time around these people. You need to read them. You need to listen to them. This is certainly the role of the pastor teacher. I think of this often. I read this often. Ephesians 4, verse 11. He says that God has given some as pastors, teachers, or literally pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. That's what I'm, that's what I do. That's what I'm trying to do right now. Why? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, referring to doctrinal unity, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So Paul says, Corinthians, I want you to be watchful for spiritual adversaries. I want you to be firm in Bible doctrine. I want you to be courageously mature in character and conduct. And number four, I want you to be strengthened by the power of Christ. That's what it means when he says, be strong. In the original language, the verb is in the passive voice, which basically means it it says, be made strong or be strengthened. And the implication is simply this. We cannot be strong on our own. We cannot strengthen ourselves. We are weak. Our strength comes from Christ. Beloved, the more you acknowledge your spiritual weakness, the stronger you'll become. The more dependent you will become on the Lord. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. Remember the Lord told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I love what Australian pastor said, Maurice Roberts, great author. You need to read his stuff. Quote, is it not here that at this very point that Paul was so strong and many are so weak? The power of Christ? What is that? But the power of Christ's grace to sweeten life, to sanctify affliction, to purify the soul, to brighten our hopes to gladden our hearts, and even to give unction to our preaching. Here is the needed dimension. But so long as the church glories in itself, we forfeit this blessing. To project our, quote, better side for all the world to see is to drive out the abiding presence of Christ. He goes on to say the conclusion seems inescapable. The way to grow in strength is to diminish in self-importance. The way to enjoy more of Christ in our lives is to be more honest, more realistic about what we are and less obsessed with the urge to keep up appearances with other people at all costs, end quote. I'm not saying do this, but it goes through my mind. I think you've got on Facebook, don't you have some private thing where you can talk to people that that you're part of? Imagine Putting on there, please pray for me. I, I struggle with the fear of man. Please pray for me. I struggle with pornography. Please pray for me. I, I, I'm weak when it comes to my own pride and I'm beginning to see it. Pray for me. I'm, 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 I'm lazy spiritually. I'm not loving my wife as Christ loved the church. Pray for me because of my pride. Boy, we don't do that, do we? We put on there the latest picture, fishing for the next compliment, promoting ourselves. Folks, you will recall how God knew that his servant Timothy needed, needed help. He knew he was weak, he was timid, he was spiritually, probably physically weak. He needed to be strengthened in his resolve to obey Christ and to keep preaching the gospel and he, he was afraid because of all that was going on with Nero. The persecution was mounting. We studied that a few weeks ago. And Paul admonished him saying, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, the implication being you have no strength in yourself, but you have unlimited strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace referring to the, the in this context, the, the, the sufficiency of Christ's Power. And because we are united to him, we possess that power. So to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus to, is to literally live your, your life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. To, to hear his word, to read his word, to meditate upon his word, to apply his word, to live out his word, to let his word instruct you, to let it dominate your life, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, Colossians 3.16. And this will include, dear friends, a personal pursuit of holiness. It will include putting up some boundaries on the types of things you would watch on television or watch on the internet, the kind of people you would be around, you would choose to be around. It includes confessing known sin and dealing with it. It includes exercising your faith. It it, it, it includes living coram Deo, in the presence of God. My grandsons are at an age now where they're involved in sports and they want to get physically stronger. They want to put on more muscle, you know, be able to lift more weight, be able to jump higher, be able to run faster, hit harder. So they're spending a lot of time in the gym and the basketball court and so forth. And of course. The key is diet and resistance training, being disciplined. You know the old saying, no pain, no gain, right? It requires self-discipline. I'm watching them push the desserts away a whole lot more now. And instead of the sodas, I'm seeing water bottles. You know how that works. You know, the same thing is true spiritually, isn't it? We have to nourish ourselves spiritually spiritually with the word of God. And we have to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. We have to exercise our faith. Colossians 1, verse 10, Paul says how to do this. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. There's the key to the power. John 15, 5, remember Jesus said that he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. And to abide means to remain or continue, to, to, to remain in fellowship with the living Christ, to have a sustained conscious communion with him in your life. Because sometimes that fellowship can be interrupted by sin. And, and as we abide in Christ, what we do is we yield our spirits to the Holy Spirit within us. And according to Ephesians 3.16, we become strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Dear friends, I must ask you, does this describe you? Are you being strengthened by the power of Christ? Or are you living in the feebleness of your own flesh? And if so, you're going to fall flat on your face. Just a matter of time. And we can all fall victim to the flesh, to the world around us, to the culture. That's what Satan would have us believe, would have us do. His world system is designed to be opposed to all that God is for. And you're going to fall victim to your favorite idol, whatever it is you choose to worship, food, social media, television, the Internet filth, money, whatever it is. You need to be strengthened by the power of Christ. And finally, Paul says, be loving in all things. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You will recall how love was the missing ingredient with the Corinthians, right? That's why he spent a whole chapter, chapter 13, the love chapter, helping them understand what love was all about. You see, they were too busy showing off their fabricated spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves to realize that they were there to edify others in the body. Dear church family, please understand. We can all fall into the same pit. In fact, we can be watchful for spiritual adversaries as we're studying here. We can be firm in Bible doctrine, courageously mature in character and conduct, be strengthened by the power of Christ. But if we're not motivated by a sincere love for Christ and for his people, we're powerless. So we need to ask God for help. Remember, love comes from the Lord, doesn't it? 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If I can put it to you real practically, if you're here today and you've got resentment in your heart towards your wife or your husband or your parents or, or maybe somebody in the church, if you're unforgiving, if you're filled with anger, If you've got some life-dominating sin that you're just not dealing with, please know this. You're not being watchful for spiritual adversaries. You're not being firm in Bible doctrine. You're not being courageously mature in character and conduct. And you're not being strengthened by the power of Christ. So I would just humbly ask you as your pastor to acknowledge this before the Lord, to repent of it, to Confess your sin. Get right with God. Get right with others. Embrace these five essentials to godliness and watch what God will do. Amen. Watch what God will do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these compelling commands that you have given us in your word. Help us by the power of your spirit to live them out that we might enjoy fully all that we have in Christ, that others may see the glory of Christ radiating from us, that others may come to faith in Christ, and ultimately that you may be glorified in our lives. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.